Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this live episode of The Compliance Guy. It is Monday, February 27th, the day before the very last day of the month of February and the great year of 2023 so far. Uh, I am joined right now by Christine Hall, Stephanie Allard, Paul Spencer, Terry Fletcher, and Scott Kraft will be joining us here in just a moment as you all are affectionately referred to as the all-star cast of characters. So good afternoon to each and every single one of you. And I could actually say afternoon because even though I have a couple of y'all that are on the West Coast, it is one o'clock Pacific Coast time. So we are all in the afternoon. You guys are just getting started with your afternoon and I'm getting ready to end my evening. So Happy Monday. Uh, as you can see, I am getting ready for another baseball season. Spring training has kicked off. I am in full anticipation of another extreme letdown by the Boston Red Sox this year. Uh, but again, that's just my problem to deal with. So for everyone tuning in from around the country, outside of the country, wherever you may be. Thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for a little while. We have a great episode uh, lined up for you today. I think the first place I want to start is with Christine Hall. So, Christine, I'm going to put you right here into the center square. <clears throat> and I want to start by talking about 99 – I want to talk about the 99212 through 99215 codes. And I just want to talk – well, you know what? Let's talk about the 202 through 215. But I want to talk about it from a pre-2021 implementation standpoint because as I prepare for some upcoming trials and Paul Spencer's helping me in some of the prep work for reviewing claims, what I am seeing from quote-unquote experts – is that they are adding words that don't exist to the definitions of ENM services, and they are conflating the difference of time as a single driving element versus time when it dominates greater than 50% of an encounter versus when we have history exam and medical decision-making, two of the three for established, three of the three for the new patients mm -hmm. when they are the dominating aspects. So let's let's go through ENM 101. And I know some of you out there are probably thinking to yourselves, why are you guys talking about 95 and 97 guidelines? Because all of the trials, all of the administrative proceedings that are taking place right now are all tied to services prior to 2021. As a matter of fact, I think, Paul, you and I have a case right now where they've gone back to 2012. So let me pause because I'm a little amped up right now. I think I've had too much sugar today. So I'm going to let, 
halfway through, I'm probably going to be dragging. But let me go ahead and turn it over to you, Christine, and let's go ahead through ENM 101, and let's get everybody on the same page, especially for our internal auditors uh, or external auditors, um, you know, having to look at pre-2021 documentation. Well, it's not just that, um, Sean. You know, we have students that are right now learning ENM, and maybe they're never hearing about 95 and 97. And especially, just like you said, a lot of the audits that are coming in right now, a lot of the reviews that are coming in are pre-2021, or they span dates of service pre-2021. I'm working on one right now myself that spans through those dates of service there. And we got to remember that uh, the counseling and coordination of care, that 50% or greater in counseling and coordination of care, I always referred to those as the results visit. Maybe you had to sit down and have a conversation that, hey, you have this diagnosis now, and what does that mean? Not appropriate for a physical exam, not appropriate to talk about history. And for that, it, we were glad that we had that counseling and coordination of care took up more than 50% of the visit so that we could find a, a proper way to look at it. Otherwise, the visits really should be based on the history that the patient's giving to us today. What brings them in the door? What is it that they're telling us that we need to kind of, that the physician or the practitioners need to kind of factor in that what path we're going to go on? The exam, the exam or the facts, those are the things they went to medical school for so that they can take that subjective, that objective part of it, that history, that exam part and come up with medical decision-making. Now, we had that two of those three for established patients could justify the level of service. So maybe the patient did have a lot to tell you about how they presented today. Maybe it was an injury that happened, and that would be very important to know how did it happen, how long ago did it happen, is it getting infected, you know, all of that great stuff. Maybe the exam is pretty straightforward at that time. Medical decision-making might include going to a, a specialist, something of that nature. So having those two of three, or if it's a new patient, you need three of three. You really do need to lay your hands on them and see, is there anything else from a medical perspective that might play into this? And, and so I think it's important, again, even though we're in the 2021, 2023, we still need to go back to that 1995 and one more. You know, with I hear a lot of we don't need history and exam anymore. You still need history and exam. And until we get a better definition of what is a medically appropriate, at least we can go back to 95 and 97 and see what the expectations have been for 20 plus years. Yeah, so I, I, I think that's great. And Terry, I want to come to you in, in just a second because. You, you had an interesting uh, a scenario to talk about with E&M services, but I, I want to talk about two things that you talked about. So one, one, you talked about laying hands on the patient. It's not just laying hands on the patient. It could be a visual inspection. Think about the fact that I could be looking at a patient's head and it's non-cephalic. Their pupils are equal and reactive. I could look at their gait and station. I could look at their skin to look for bruising or scabbing or any other problems. I can look for clubbing and cyanosis. So not only, it's not always about putting a stethoscope onto somebody, right? But we could do a visual inspection as well. And that was a big, I think, aha moment in the, uh, one of the cases that I just came off of at the end of uh, 20, 
22, where the prosecution was like, but this doctor never put hands on the patient. Well, who cares? They visually inspected. That's still part of the physical examination. The second thing that you brought up, and, and I love that you mentioned this, <clears throat> it is the definition of a medically appropriate history and exam. So we have no definitive guidance at this point, either from the American Medical Association or from the Centers for Medicare Medical Sur Medicaid Services. But what we have, what we have, and I agree with this statement right here, a provider watching a patient walking down the hallway is a ton of information. I agree 100%. But what, what a medically appropriate history and examination translates to right now is what the provider of care, or if you want to call them the treating provider, makes as a determination for what constitutes reasonableness from a historical capturing standpoint and a physical objective examination standpoint. <clears throat> this is one of these areas where I would say, if you are the person responsible for compliance in your organization, you need to have a policy. And that policy needs to that policy needs to specifically highlight and outline what your practice's definition of a medically appropriate history and examination is. All right. Um, so thank you, Paul. Uh, we have some internal messages that are being sent, and I apologize. Okay. So, Terry, I want to come over to you while I try to recompose myself. And... <laughs> Terry, I, I almost about... held it in until I saw you. <laughs> I know, I was starting to laugh. <laughs> I had to put myself on mute. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I, I want to talk about the critical importance because we're talking about ENM, and you just had an interesting experience with um, an education session where we will say there was less than stellar information being conveyed. And I will let you take that as far as you want to take it. Um, but it, I want you to talk about the importance of doing your diligence and surrounding yourself with reliable sources so that when you hear something that sounds so uh, uh, so unbelievable that you know you have other sources to be able to go to validate what you're hearing and then opine on anything that um, Christine and I have said so far, please. Well, I think one thing that I'm surprised about is I'm still seeing written notes. And so I, I just, I, I don't understand how we are, we're taking that. We're going that far back. I mean, 1985 was a great year, but we've moved on from there. You know, let's, let's kind of come into where we're at now in 2023. But for example, and I know Sean, since we have a BAA going on, um, I sent you and Scott a couple of notes that I was reviewing and, the doctor, basically what you could read, uh, said something like the patient's daughter's information with a phone number. You couldn't read the two elements of exam. And at the bottom, it said patient needs a TAVAR, which is a valve insertion, valve replacement. And so I'm looking at this and the doctor built a level four. This was retrospect. And I was just like, you're killing me here. 
because there was there was no history in exam and the argument was we don't need one hi christine and so it was just like you don't need one did you not read the cpt book it says you have to have a medically appropriate now he said exactly why do i need one if i know that's why the patient's referred to me it says medically appropriate medically appropriate to me is getting a, is getting information so i know who to call if there's a problem like oh my gosh and this was <laughs> Hi, Paul. <laughs> this was just going around and around and around. And finally, I'm just like, okay, we need to take a minute so I could go outside and kick dirt because it was just, it was so frustrating. But the second thing, and I don't know if you guys have seen a lot of things that are going on on LinkedIn right now. So for those of you, you're, you're here live on LinkedIn. I think this is, is really tough for me. And some days, you know, I want to put my head in the sand and go, wow, I just need to block that person. And not hear what they're saying. And then other days I think, but if I do that, look at the audience that they're telling that to. And that's when we have to then clean up some messes when they're given wrong information. I actually sat on a meeting last night where it was just awful. So here's the problem. I'm seeing a lot of on LinkedIn, no more, no less. Okay. I've heard that quite a bit. I agree with that with annual well visits with IPP. So the welcome to Medicare visit, you know, you're, you're just talking. I, I agree with that. But when it comes to a problem-oriented E&M service, even though you don't have to have a history of present illness um, in its completion of what we're used to, or a past family social history, if it's contributory to your medical decision-making process, if you need to know about that patient's history of cancer, if you, you need to know their status of their diabetes and if they're on medication, if you need to know if they're homeless, that's a social determinant of health. Do they have access to care? That's important information that may not be something that you think it should be documented, but it should be documented. And it also helps other pro providers who are looking at your records, especially in the hospital setting. But the no more, no less is driving me crazy, especially because AMA doesn't realize when they give minimums, everyone meets the minimum. They don't, they don't go in the middle. They rarely mix, meet the maximum, they meet the minimum. And the minimum sometimes can get you into an issue with clinical documentation integrity, uh, clinical legal issues. And you can't walk down the hall in a telehealth visit unless you tell your patient to do it and you're expecting one of the parents to say, or, or a caregiver to say, yeah, that patient looks like they don't have any neurodeficit. So there, there's some compliance issues and some integrity issues when it comes to some of this stuff that I bang my head on the wall with and, and continuous documentation. Yeah. And I think one of the things that folks need to also keep in mind, and I mean this with no disrespect, but here's the deal. Nobody submits their claims to the AMA for reimbursement. Okay. So when somebody says to me, well, you know, I, I have a authoritative documentation from a reliable source. And I always say to them, well, who is that? And they go, the American Medical Association. And I, I pause and I go, okay, now to a certain degree, I'm with you, right? Because there are times where there's a collaboration between the AMA and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services where CMS says we are adopting the, CMA, uh, the AMA guidelines. But the ultimate determination sits with the payer either via a medical coverage guideline a local coverage determination a local coverage article or a national coverage determination so be careful 
simply relying on what the AMA is telling you because they are not the ones responsible for paying the bills. Stephanie, let me come to you and get some of your thoughts on what we're talking about. Yeah, so just to reiterate what you're saying, Sean, I think it's kind of funny because we've received some questions here as if we um, didn't know what we were doing or people questioning the quality of the way we were trying to help them because they said we didn't follow AMA by looking to CMS for guidance. So it's really important to understand, and I think we've said this before, we do look to AMA first. We look to what instructions are in the different manuals that we have, but you have to layer on top of that payer policy. And one step further than that, if you look through different uh, participating provider contracts, or, or not the contracts, the manuals, the, the participating provider manual, they will reference in there that they follow CMS on many different scenarios. Um, I've also met with different people who work for some of the large payers who have said that they are instructed internally to follow CMS when their own organization doesn't have a policy. So, you know, across the board, it's the, it's the safe way, especially if we're looking at things from an educational standpoint. CMS is kind of that gold standard if that payer doesn't have a policy because at least you know you're covering all the different aspects of the codes that you are billing out. Um, really quick on the subject of 95 and 97, yep. I did just want to mention too, I actually had someone reach out to me this morning because they are going through an SIU audit and it's on dates of service that fall within 2021 guidelines, but the insurance is auditing them potentially by 95, 97 guidelines. Um, and I was yeah. kind of, you know, just giving her some tips as to what to look for because things that are all day long, a level four in all three columns, they're saying that it's not supported and also asking for a lot of money back. So yeah, we have to stay up to date to know it, but also watch what your payers are doing. Well, here's the thing. And, and I'm just going to say it, look, you know, if you get, if you get rung up, for an SIU audit or a TPE audit or a CERT review or a RAC audit or a UPIC investigation, please reach out to one of us and let us help you on the front end. Because once you go through the review and the results are in, it becomes a, 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 a more difficult, more laborious process to be able to get these these findings overturn and it becomes very, very expensive. Getting somebody like ourselves involved up front helps to defray a lot of those costs because we can reach out on behalf of the organization, on behalf of the practice, the providers, to be able to say, we've been retained by this organization. And as part of our retainer, an independent third-party objective audit of the documentation performed by auditors with the requisite skills in this specialty have already performed the review. And there's so many other things that you can do prior to submitting the documentation. All right, before we move on from this, Paul, I want to give you the last word on this topic because I, I, I saw you kind of getting frustrated with some of what's been talked about. Well, so let's, let's, let's hear it, buddy. 
Well, there are three things that jumped out at me. First of all, with handwritten notes, Terry, I agree with you. I can't believe we're still dealing with handwritten notes. But uh, I can tell you from the great white north here in Wisconsin, we have a state standard, and it's a pretty good one, that if you take that handwritten note and you take it into the waiting room, uh, any person within that waiting room should be able to read that note. Uh, you know, I... I do not miss handwritten notes. You know, I know that there are a lot of uh, evils about EMR, but uh, the days of trying to educate a physician on a subsequent hospital note that says, looks good, ate breakfast this morning, will discharge tomorrow, and trying to teach them that it's not a level three subsequent visit, I'm glad those days are over. Uh, second thing uh, that I wanted to mention is that with regard to the standard of commercial insurance carriers, uh, not having a policy and defaulting to Medicare, uh, you might want to look uh, at the times when there are where both have policies. You have to keep in mind that when you look at the long uh, bibliography at the end of those policies, whether it be an LCD or a commercial insurance policies, they're dealing with the same professional, uh, tried and true medical literature and you know, uh, scientifically rigorous medical literature uh, for both policies in many, many cases. You'll probably see the exact same policies one-to-one. Uh, -one. Uh, so uh, don't be afraid to default to the Medicare policy because when that commercial policy is created, they're more than likely going to have that same medical policy as a point of reference. Uh, I That's think I'm going to stop there and let's uh, move on. Yeah. So, all right, Terry, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the reins here for a couple minutes. And I want, I want to go through what transpired with some of the updates that were pushed out on last Friday, the 22nd by the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. Now we need to make a, a, a distinction because the, the changes that took place were not in the Medicare program integrity manual, what they call the MIP right? They were, uh, or the PIM, they were pushed out through the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, specifically Chapter 12. And they dealt with aspects of evaluation and management services. So let me pause there. Let me give you the floor and take it away. Yes. Yeah, so for anybody that wants to reference this, it's R1184, um, sorry, R11842CP. So it was also a change request. So what came out basically is some clarifications to split and shared visits to E&M services and how we're supposed to report them. But what I found was interesting is they added just some nuances and some placements. Always think of the placement of some of the language and wording when it comes to medical necessity and who can bill certain services. A couple of things that stood out is it talked about the service should be documented during or as soon as practicable after it is provided in order to maintain an accurate medical record. That's always been in there, but I thought it was interesting on where they put it. So that was, as you get into it, it's actually on page um, seven. They also talked about, and this has been a big thing, I can't tell you how many times, and again, you know, I deal with telehealth all the time, where I get a lot of telehealth, or I should say providers on the telehealth list during PHE, thinking they can bill E&M services, no. They can bill what they're what is under their licensure. So I know Christine mentioned um, behavioral health, and I know Stephanie's in that space. Um, I know Paul and I have talked about different procedural things, and I know Sean and I have talked about things. 
E&M services are for MDDO and nurse practitioners and PAs or the, or the mid-level providers. They're not for occupational therapists or physical therapists, clinical social workers, and the list goes on. You have to stay within your lane, if you will. And one of the things that said again on that page seven was CPT, do not pay for CPT E&M services by physical therapists or occupational therapists. And they even said an independent practice. The other thing that I thought was a, an update that kind of stuck with me a little bit here is that they did this whole write-up on, remember that, that G code we have for describing visit complexity. And they said, well, here's how you use it. Here's what's going on, but wait, they always say the but wait. Um, we're not paying for it until 2024 because of the Omnibus Act or the CAA, which is the Consolidated Appropriations Act, all those extension things. And then here's one that I thought was a really big deal. This is on page nine of this document. There's 27 pages, so I'm not going through everything. But I just highlighted a couple of things that just popped out at me. Under G, under this page, it talked about the like, selecting a level of, of service. And it said our reviewers, and this is on time-based visits on ENM. I thought this was great. Our reviewers will use the medical record documentation to objectively determine the medical necessity of the visit and accuracy of the documentation of time whether documented via start stop time or documentation of total time if time is relied upon to support the ENM visit. What I found interesting about that is they've never said that before. They've basically have said that, you know, here's the time AMA has given, you know, all these different time, you know, uh, elements. We have meet or exceed in the hospital now. We have ranges of time in the office where we have to be in within that range. But the fact that to me, that's a warning. That's saying, if you're timing your visit, we are now going to look at that and make sure. And they use the word objectively. Time to me, yes, it's objective because it should be either stop, stop, or it should be, you know, total time, black and white. But who's reading this objectively? Is it a nurse practitioner? Is it a, is it one of their people that are just reviewing that's a, you know, a, a healthcare administrator? Is it, you know, somebody in their peers? I just thought it was really interesting to see that within the note. And... Hi, Scott, I see you're here. Um, and so one of the things that just it just fell on me is that I get so many minimum time met. Again, the the thing more, no more, no less. And I get that minimum time. And so I don't know, to me, it's almost like a trap. It's saying if you're going to default to time, guess what? We're going to take a look at it. Christine, I know you've, you've dealt with time. Everything I have ever um, shared in education when it comes to time. Um, and I can't take credit for it. A good friend of mine once said, if when you're reading that document that was 90 minutes, 120 minutes, you should be doing this the whole time you're reading going, oh, yes, I can definitely see in this documentation why this took 90 minutes. Otherwise, I always go back to that. Isn't medical necessity the overarching criterion? So how can you say that it took 90 minutes to pull a splinter out of Christine's finger because well, she was just crying a lot. Suck it up, buttercup. So they're saying to me in this new document that because they put in that time statement that, you know, we're going to decide if it if time was really warranted. And that that's going to be, boy, I think when that comes up, well, I think that's going to be interesting. Yes, yeah, Scott, let me let me give you let me give you this. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I, I came in a little late because I was on a provider call and hopefully I'm not repeating anything, but I did a provider audit recently for a very big client where every single visit had 30 minutes of documented service time. 
it was an urgent care. Uh, and all these cases were like, I got a URI, I got a sore throat, you know, every form of modest, you know, 99213-ish uh, condition you could imagine. And the thing I would caution our listeners when it comes to setting internal audit policies and how time works is, you know, I threw out every single one. I was like, this does not make any sense to me from a medical necessity perspective, how this could take a half an hour. Like, I almost want to go on site and be like, please act this out for me, or I want to shadow you to see how much time this was taking. And the, the client came back and said, well, it's our policy that as long as they document the time uniquely for each encounter, we support that. And, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, so basically we're saying to me, like, we think these should all be level fours because the provider followed our policy on time. And I wanted to like kind of bang my head against like the fence a couple of times and say, this is like a bigger risk than all of the other things that we're working on. Right. Because you've got this provider who is every time 30 minutes. And these are all these very modest cases. Well, here's the, here's the interesting thing about that. And it's really funny because Robert Lyles and I had a conversation about just this issue earlier this morning, which is the government still looking at the medically unbelievable day. Listen, if you have more minutes in a day than what you can, than, than what actually exists. So if you have more minutes of patient care in a day, than more minutes that actually exist in a 24 hour period. You have a problem. Oh, okay? Sean, I got a good about one. 24 hours. If you know, if you're you know exceeding, that, you know, that chat yeah, GPT if you're exceeding. Day, that's where you're, that, that's where you have the problem. Go ahead, Terry. You know, that chat, um, DPT thing or GPT thing that's going on where there yeah, it's, 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 yeah. So, um, I have, I have a provider that's a beta testing site for it. You guys will love this one. And he said that the, the bot is arguing with him on the clinical information that he's trying to put in and was actually threatened threatening yeah. uh, because he wasn't agreeing with the bot. Well, the argument took 17 or 18 extra minutes and he used that time in the visit to time his visit. And I, uh, I'm just going to leave it there. It, it, wait, I just watched the movie Megan, Terry, and you're... <laughs> I'm just, you know, I, I feel like every like day I'm, I'm in a Black Mirror episode. I, that's all I'm saying. I, I feel like this is a Netflix series. But yeah, I said, no. you can't use that. You're a beta testing site for you know, a new way to document that's arguing with you and doesn't agree with what you're saying and you're going to use that time. I, I just, I wanted to call Paul and say, I, I need some help here or a drink. I don't know. It was, it was really quite, I, yeah. I'd like to be in that like ALJ appeal where he's like, well, I was arguing with the bot for another 20 minutes. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, look, I think, I think we need to come to a realization at this point right now and, and, and any vendors that are listening, listening that are in the artificial intelligence space, uh, I'm not sorry. This is the truth. At this point right now, there is no artificial intelligence in healthcare. We are not sophisticated enough to warrant AI. If you want to talk about AI in healthcare, talk about augmented intelligence, but not artificial intelligence. We do not have enough in the way of machine learning and enough data that's been put in. But what frightens me even more is that a provider would use something like ChatGPT to construct progress notes for patients. Again, it's a machine learning process. 
I'm I'm quite certain, you know, I'm getting ready. You know, one of my next phases that I want to do in healthcare is I actually want to be an arbiter. Uh, I, I, I want to be an arbiter. And I would love to be sitting in a meeting where somebody says to me, um, where, where a provider says to me, I spent 20 minutes arguing with a bot. I, I, I would have that person committed. All right. Can the ALJ call right. up the bot as a witness at that point? Can the, can the bot be a witness in the hearing? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, so, Terry, you just raised something, you know, and this is the other thing that really scares me. Are providers utilizing non-HIPAA approved devices to engage in the care of their patients? If you are starting a sentence off by saying, hey, Alexa, you should probably stop because starting a sentence with Hey, Alexa, I would like to now prescribe a 30-day dose of Adderall. Folks, you're going to have a problem. And I know it's happening because Amazon is in the prescription drug space. All right. Um, Paul, I, I, know, I know you probably want to talk about because you love Larry Weed. So go ahead and talk about Larry Weed, and then I want to get to our next topic. Well, actually, I want to defer to uh, Stephanie because she had a point to make as well. Okay, real quick. Um, one thing I yep. just wanted to say to everybody that's listening, and I, I think the others on the panel will agree here. When you look at the different split shared and time-based guidelines and everything surrounding that, they're really coming after and attacking workflow that's known to be in the hospital setting. If you staff with NPs, if you staff with PAs to save you time, start billing under your NPs and PAs. Um, you know, we have providers who are going in and still having them document everything history down to treatment plan, but they want to come in, do their counter signature, say they saw the patient reviewed and agreed, and that's really not going to get you anywhere. So if you're staffing that way to save your physician time, you really need to start thinking about that, especially when we make the switch and time is the driving factor for everything. It's a great point. Okay, let's move on, and we're going to skip Larry Weed for now. We'll come back to him at some point. All right, I want to talk about, um, Paul, I'm actually going to bring this over to you. So psych services. I, I, I think... One of the big problems, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the big problems that we have when it comes to audits, and Scott, you're one of our go-to people for psych reviews as well. I think one of the big problems that we see when there is a psych audit of a provider is that we have individuals at the payers or being retained by the government who do not possess the fundamental knowledge in the space of psych services or behavioral health services. And as a result, they're just making stuff up. So, Paul, let's talk about, um, um, it, let's talk about psychotherapy services without evaluation and management services. And then let's talk about evaluation and management services when psychotherapy is not the driving component 
for that visit? Okay. Well, the, the first point that I want to make is that a psychiatrist can do both. You know, uh, whether one or the other or both, they can perform both of those services. And they are one of the few people, given the fact that you have psychotherapy CPT codes, who can perform both. So the way psychotherapy is supposed to be documented, and obviously this is going to vary based on different Medicaid uh, uh, you know, rules from state to state, but basically you have to talk about the, where that patient is as far as the baseline, uh, you know, any stressors or anything that has complicated their diagnosis since the last time you have had a psychotherapy service with that patient. You have to talk about uh, any uh, methods that are being used in order to alleviate those symptoms, whether they be uh, holistic or non-holistic uh, types of uh, services. And you have to make some type of comment about how that patient is progressing towards their treatment goals. Now, that would be a psychotherapy service. And the last most important thing that you put in a psychotherapy note is the amount of time that you spent face-to-face -face with that patient performing only psychotherapy services. The big uh, roadblock that we're hitting, uh, and we just hit one today, was uh, uh, psychopharmacology visits, which are not psychotherapy visits and can be split out. And we're talking about how that patient is responding to a certain medication regimen, uh, how it is an E&M service, how uh, different elements of an E&M service need to be uh, performed, depending on how far back your auditor is going. As Sean said, we have a case that's going back uh, quite a ways. Uh, but uh, understanding that uh, there are two different types of services now, uh, and the definitions of those services do not intersect. Uh, we have seen, uh, to Sean's point, some auditors who are working under the auspices of the government attempting to change CPT code definitions of E&M services to make them more friendly to uh, psychiatric providers. And that and E&M services are not specifically called out for psychiatric providers in CPT. Uh, I would watch for that. Uh, you know, Sean sent me a rather egregious example today as we were uh, talking uh, earlier about this topic. So it's very important to understand that psychotherapy is psychotherapy and psychopharmacology is going to be, in most cases, a completely different service. So Scott, let me let me come to you because you have done the lion's share of the psych behavioral health audits. Um, well, I, I can't really say you've done the lion's share because Stephanie's done a, a, a ton of them as well. But let's say um, you know, let's just go with with the train of thought for a moment. What have been the big biggest obstacles? that you have seen in provider documentation in the areas of behavioral health, uh, psychopharmacology, psychotherapy, et cetera. And then I want to come to Stephanie because you're actually providing audits for a huge behavioral health group as well. 
Um, you know, we've talked about this on some of the discussions in the past, right? Where some of the biggest barriers are lack of clear um, psychotherapy in the psychotherapy note, um, lack of understanding, I think just to build on what Paul said, lack of understanding of what how the patient has progressed or not progressed since the previous visit, um, providers not keeping an up-to-date treatment plan, something that uh, can be synced up throughout the notes. You don't have to document a treatment plan in psychotherapy every single time, but we should have some sense if we were to look at the patient's case episodically, how the treatment plan has evolved, how the patient's done or not done. Um, with respect to combination of psychotherapy and other services, I think a great blurring of the lines in both still to this day, uh, the way that time is documented. So the time is not either separated out for a psychotherapy service or the time that is described in a psychotherapy service when done uh, concurrently with an evaluation and management service includes things, even if meant um, as, a, as a smart phrase, includes things that invalidate the psychotherapy component of it. Because if you're starting to talk about, you know, you discussed like lab results and you did these types of activities, you're out of the realm of psychotherapy. And so we're, we're right back in that place uh, kind of where we started uh, a little bit. And so, you know, I think the other thing to be cognizant of lastly is just cloning, carry forward of documentation um, into psychotherapy. I'm starting to see more, uh, strangely in the last year or two, more psychotherapy templates that build in a lot of activities that I think are marginally beneficial. I, well, maybe that's not my judgment to make, but, you know, full on histories and mental status exams and things where it's just like, I'm not entirely sure those activities are happening in that way in every visit. Um, and it concerns me a little bit when it's stuck into a timed visit note. Yeah. All right. So let me just jump in real quick, Sean. And on that, go ahead. One more thing to add to, to what Paul and Scott were talking about is I see a lot of psychotherapy with the evaluation management on the same day when it's either a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, a psychiatrist, um, and they're seeing the patient maybe two, three times a week. And they're looking at the patient with depression and anxiety and medications. And they're trying to justify a 99214 two to three times a week. And if you take it out of the, the mental health arena, a 99214, we wouldn't expect to see that in a primary care two to three times a week, right? Um, that patient probably needs to be hospitalized at that point. Who knows? I mean, I'm not clinical, but we don't expect to see that in the outside of the mental health world. I don't know how those providers could justify the 99214 two to three times a week, especially when there's no change to meds and no change to condition. Yeah. Stephanie, I'll give you a final word on this and now I want to move to our, our next topic. Okay. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the conversations I've been able to have uh, recently, as, as Sean stated, I do have a large behavioral health client. Um, I do get to meet with their new providers for training when they start with the organization. And then recently, I've had some smaller practices. Yes, Christine, I know. It is, <laughs> it is nice to get the chance to set them up correctly to begin with. Um, but I found it interesting. Last week, I had a couple of uh, one provider practices that I met with. And there were a lot of issues throughout both of the audits. Um, there were issues with 
E&M services, leveling of E&M services, understanding what goes into the different CPT codes like interactive complexity. And what it came down to in the er errors I was seeing across the board for both of them is that they just don't have the training. Um, the one had actually been in practice for over 10 years. They, they both have stated, which we all know this, that they don't get the training when they're in school. And then they come out and the one who's been in practice for over 10 years has never had an audit done. So they've never had any kind of feedback. Um, they completely misunderstood, for example, billing and E&M along with psychotherapy that, you know, psychotherapy is the only one that can be time-based. There was a lot of level five billing. Um, one of the things I noticed as well is that a lot of times when we deal with psych practices, they're, they're practicing in their own ways, right? So it's not just like we have typical talk therapy happening. Um, I don't really know when that shift has occurred. I know for myself, I've seen it more in the last two years than I have before, but there's a lot of what's being called integrative therapies and things like that. So, you know, when you look at psych from a CPT code standpoint, it looks like it's all really straightforward, easy to understand. But when you think about all those factors and the lack of training, it really plays into a lot of the risk that exists in that particular setting. Um, one of the other things too that I found interesting, and I'll end on this, I've started to ask providers that I get to meet with one-on-one -on -one for some more feedback about their perspective when it comes to psychotherapy. Because a lot of times, you know, it's easy for me to show them a slide or show them some bullet points about what we want to see in a note. But I want to know from the clinical standpoint how it is that they're trained. And I've been told by multiple providers since I've started to ask this question that they are trained in their, per, their specialty to put as little information as possible. And I had one provider end of last year who was so extreme with this that she she had a whole separate um, bank, I guess we'll call it, of handwritten notes that she didn't want to show anybody. She didn't want to show the hospital compliance department or any payers um, because she felt that strongly about it. And I know we've talked about some of the funny extremes here with you know an entire dictated note with too much detail. But it, it has helped um, the way that I look at it and the way that I talk to providers to help them understand what we need from a coding perspective. Because like Scott has been saying too, we can't have it look the same every time. To some extent, we have to know there's still ongoing issues, how that patient's doing, um, you know, working towards the goals like Paul was saying. Um, but, you know, like I said, it just helped to understand why so many of the providers in this space are struggling with that. That's that's great information. All right, I wanna I wanna move to. I wanna go to Paul. And I wanna talk about the mergers that are taking place right now in healthcare. And some of the some of the major ones that people may have heard about, and then some of the little less known mergers that are taking place that are going to have potentially dire consequences on the industry. Go ahead and take it away. Well, the one that really jumped out at me, and this is not particularly a merger, but it's certainly a uh, harbinger of things to come. When we consider the history of the Medicare program, uh, you know, originally being formulated in the 60s, 
as a way of taking older populations off of in commercial insurance roles uh, and then putting it into uh, this basket of services uh, for Medicare and, uh, you know, later Medicaid for underfunded, uh, you know, for, uh, for uh, you know, a, a certain level of care at the state level. Humana announced that they are completely pulling out of the employer insurance market and they are strictly going to be a Medicare Part C plan. Uh, that is that is quite the change. And uh, if I had seen at least one RADV audit from Humana over the last 15 years that showed that they weren't uh, over-reporting their data, I'd be very excited by the announcement. But I haven't seen one. I'm still waiting. Uh, but I think it's a harbinger of things to come with regard to uh, you know, in commercial insurance companies being, uh, in for the most part, designed to uh, benefit to the shareholders of those companies rather than the patients that they serve. It's a rather disturbing trend. Uh, the other uh, merger, and I'll, I'll uh, you know, uh, forward this one to Terry as well, was the uh, decision uh, by Amazon and One Medical uh, that uh, is now currently uh, merging together in order to uh, provide uh, medical services. Uh, you know, <laughs> I you know I tend to think of Amazon as somebody who uh, maybe once or twice a year uh, delivers a rare compact disc to my house, uh, rather than somebody <laughs> who uh, provides uh, medical care. Uh, but uh, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Terry. Well, first of all, if Amazon doesn't come to my house, then I get a knock at the door wondering if I'm okay. So you know, <laughs> you've seen that out there. Yeah, I order from Amazon every day. Actually did today. I needed some stoppers for my wine bottle and I also needed some <laughs> nail polish remover. So there we go. You can go at anything from Amazon. Well, one thing that concerned me is that Amazon is, is the biggest public company I've ever seen. I mean, they, you know, this was a $3.8 billion purchase or deal. And it got me thinking about selling information, about them not understanding their HIPAA space in all this. Um, one of the things that came up, and actually from a friend of mine, is that, and she was just panicked. So she was somebody that decided not to get vaccinated, okay? Um, she had COVID and felt that her antibodies were enough, and she hasn't been sick at all, okay, except for that, that bout with COVID three years ago. Well her doctor put on that unvaxxed status on one of her claims, the Z28.310. And she said, you know, did you see that thing about Amazon and buying One Health? Well, one of my blues is under one of those companies. And I would hate to see that diagnosis get around the Amazon uh, water cooler. And anybody that knows me or didn't know me, now they're not only tracking me, but it gets into hands of people that I don't know. So it just, it made me a little concerned because when you think about Amazon, I know they tried to get in the health space and it was more for their own employees for, I think it was preventative health, but now they're getting into, and then also for um, prescriptions, but now they're getting into the space of actually having patient information from, I think it's 18 other different health systems. And what is Amazon in the business of? They're in the business of selling products. And so I could see them taking some of that information because now they're entitled to access of all that sensitive information 
And if you are a diabetic patient, they're going to send you things that have to do with that um, diagnosis. Or if you're somebody's orthopedic and you need a, mm -hmm. you know, an orthotic or some kind of, you know, device or anything, they're going to start sending you ads for that. I'm just having a problem with yeah. it. I think yeah, that there should have been something that was blocked there. Yep. And the way that the internet has evolved, I mean, it used yeah. to be this, this wonderful little uh, information uh, uh, spot that was at, uh, at your hands at your PC. Well, now everybody has a PC that looks something like this like in their phone, pocket, yeah. you know? So, uh, the way social media works is you like something and suddenly you start getting inundated with a lot of different things. This is, uh, the WebMD effect on steroids. Oh, I read about this uh, disease and then now I'm getting a lot of advertisements about this disease. I must need this medication. The cookies. Well, actually, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, no, you don't. <laughs> uh, that just happens to be the way the internet works, inundating you with information that maybe you need just because you happen to look at it once. Uh, well, it, and, and Sean, you made a it, comment about this too, as, as far as if you're in your room yeah. saying, um, hey, Alexa, which who owns that? Amazon. You know, I've had physicians that I've shadowed and they're, and I said, and I'm just shadowing them, writing down things and seeing if they need to scribe. And they basically had Alexa in their office. And I, it was the first time I actually saw it in this one office in Los Angeles. And he started saying, this is the patient's uh, clinical. What, what should I prescribe? And I'm like, you're counting on Amazon to tell you that? No, Alexa to tell me that. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> okay. So and the patient's like, what's the problem? <laughs> Yeah, it would not shock me if in the near future we see that there was a settlement agreement between the Department of Justice and Amazon for violation of whatever it is, or it may not, it may, maybe not the Department of Justice. It would probably be uh, the Office for Civil Rights. Well, Sean, uh, what is for the a violation? Who, who who passes these these mergers or these purchases? Because there was something. Is it DOJ? Or is it FCC? Or yeah, so it will get looked at by the Department of Justice, and then it's the F, uh, FTC. Uh, FTC. F FTC. Federal. So Trade there was Commission. something in that. Article so they're looking for antitrust. Antitrust. Like okay. So there was something in that article that said that they didn't have time to stop it because of how quickly it went through. What are they talking exactly. about? They didn't have time. Did you see that, Christine? They didn't yes, have I time. Did. I, I think it was on the Washington Post that I saw that. Yeah, and Washington was... Post from Becker's Health. Yeah. Wow, I know. So, I'm like, and, and Paul, you, you were you were referring to the internet that Al Gore created, right? That that's the one you were thinking of. <laughs> All right, let me let me let me transition to our last topic, um, because this one was uh, spawned by one of our viewers, our followers, Samantha Patterson, and it has to do with the advanced beneficiary notification. Um, a couple of things, okay. ABNs are critical. You've got to use them, but they have to be deployed prior to the service being rendered to the patient. You cannot issue an ABN prior to the service being even thought of, right? It can't be part of the patient information packet where they're signing a blanket waiver. It doesn't work that way. Uh, number two, it can't be given to the patient after the service has already been rendered. You can't go back to them and say, oh, by the way, Scott, this little procedure that we did on you, it may or may not be covered by your insurance company. And in the event that it's not, we need you to accept financial liability for it. Doesn't work that way. 
The other thing to keep in mind is that the ABN is only applicable to Medicare. It's not applicable to Medicaid. It is applicable to Medicare, period. If you have Medicaid beneficiaries and you are getting them to sign an ABN, please stop. Please, please stop. Go ahead, Paul. In addition, it's not for statutorily excluded services uh, because those services uh, shouldn't be billed at all. These are for services that uh, for which there is a belief that coverage will either be reduced, limited, or not applied to the service. Uh, it is not for things that are statutorily excluded. Yeah, that's right. The, the easiest way to think about an ABN is it, it's used for services that are covered sometimes, but not all the time. They are covered when you have a medically appropriate, medically reasonable, and medically necessary diagnosis to substantiate the claim that you're submitting to the insurance company for remuneration. Now, the, and you're right, uh, Cairo Medicare, you're 100% correct. They cannot use an ABN for Medicare Advantage payers. Um, th th that is not what they are for. They, these are for Medicare Part B services. Now, how does a, an ABN differ for from a waiver of liability for a commercial payer. Now, remember, an ABN is also referred to as a waiver of liability. But from a commercial payer perspective, it is referred to as a waiver of liability. And I actually found a very good example from this organization. Let me see if I could even find it now. I bet you I'm not even going to be able to find it now. Um. Guess what? I lost it. So we'll just have to get over it. So anyways, if I can find it, I'll post that example. Um, for a commercial insurance company, there may or may not be specific requirements for completing a waiver of liability. That is something that you need to go to each of the commercial payers for whom you participate, but not just for the payer. You got to look at the specific plans. Whether it's a point of service, a PPO, an HMO, um, an MCO, whatever it may be, it could be a self-funded. They each plan may have a different requirement for what's required to be completed on a waiver of liability. So please, 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 please. And it was funny because Samantha actually sent me um, a message. Uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before about ABNs. And then all of a sudden today, Paul, you and I, from one of our big ortho clients, uh, we started getting these letters uh, or these emails about complete. No, it wasn't. It was the rheumatology client that we have. Excuse me. It was not ortho. It was the rheumatology client where they were asking questions about, okay, I found on the internet two different versions of these waivers. Which ones do I use for Medicaid? And then all of a sudden the doctor chimed in and he's like, we better not be sending an ABN over to a patient for Medicaid. And it was crazy because the physician actually knew not to get an ABN signed for a Medicaid patient. Folks, listen, it, it, for Medicare, it's form R131, okay? And there's two different versions. There is the Espanol and there is the Inglés. 
So depending on where you are and depending on what your population is, and they may be available in other languages if you have those populations. But again, the key to keep in mind, three things. One, they're used for services that are sometimes covered, but not always. They are not for statutorily excluded services, nor are they for services that are um, uh, part of a annual benefit, right? Like the welcome to Medicare, the IPPE, those kind of things. Number two, they ha- they cannot be done as a blanket waiver. And number three, they have they cannot be done after the service is rendered. And finally, number four, they have to be done prior to the service being rendered after the provider has explained what the service is to the beneficiary. All right. Now, and again, I agree. I'm going to show this last comment uh, 100% correct. Uh, There's also specialized language for QMB patients and for non-PAR providers, 100%. Again, those will vary by the plans for which you're participating. All right. So that literally takes us to our one hour mark. And I feel like we just started, but we accomplished so much during this past hour. I want to say thank you to Christine Hall, Scott Kraft, Terry Fletcher, Stephanie Howard, Paul Spencer, this all-star cast of characters. As always, thank you so much for being here and hanging out with me and all of our viewers on a Monday afternoon. And to each and every single one of you who's tuning in, logging on, and hanging out with us around the country, around the world, wherever you may be, thank you so much. Terry and I will be back tomorrow with our hashtag Terry Tuesday. Oh, Lord, pray for us. We're going to be talking about Incident 2 billing services. And hang on to your seat because there is just so much to talk about. All right. One last thing that I want to mention. I have the one the only, the infamous Robert Lyles coming up on the podcast on Thursday this week. And we're going to be doing a breakdown of the release of the DOJ um, self-disclosure for corporation information. And I'm sure Robert and I will probably get into a whole bunch of different conversations as we always do. So until then, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Go Red Sox. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.